Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Catherine de Medici, a toweringly important figure in French history. Uh, she effectively ruled France between the years of 1559 and 1588. And this is very interesting because she started out in life as a relatively minor noble in Florence, in what is today Italy, before rising to become the Queen of France, only to be completely and immediately sidelined by her husband, Henry II of France, while he ruled. But then when he died, Catherine seized the chance to take control of the kingdom by ruling on behalf of her young son, and then another young son, and then another. Her sons didn't really have much luck when it came to longevity, the the poor kids, I can tell you that. Anyway, um, Catherine ruled France during one of the most tumultuous and conflict-ridden periods in its history. Not the most tumultuous and conflict-ridden period in its history. It wasn't quite the French Revolution, although it wasn't all that far off, to be honest. Um, Catherine's time in charge was dominated by her attempts to manage and also sometimes to inflame the ongoing conflict between Protestants and Catholics throughout France. She was a Catholic herself, but uh, she was generally reasonably tolerant of the French Protestants, uh, known as the Huguenots, um, except when she wasn't tolerant of them, that is, which potentially resulted in the murder of tens of thousands of Huguenots, but we'll get to, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Don't you worry. Plenty of blood and guts and horrible murder today. Rather rather too much of it, to be honest. Um, for, for much of her career, Catherine was surrounded by enemies, and not all of them were Protestant either. By the end of things, she was well and truly on the wrong side of hardline Catholics as well, who had been a thorn in her side for decades beforehand. But through all of this, she still found the time to make careful dynastic plans and attempted to make sure that her kids would hold the French crown very securely. And she completely failed to bring this about, unfortunately, as the House of Valois lost the French crown forever after the death of her son Henry. But that wasn't entirely her fault, as we'll talk about. There is so much to talk about. In fact, that we better get underway here. Let's get stuck into the story of Catherine de Medici, the hugely important Queen of France. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to 1519, to the 13th of April, when Caterina Maria Romula di Medici was born in Florence. And by Florence, I mean both the city and the country, because back in 1519, Florence was its own republic. It had been for 400 years and would be for another 50. It then expanded to become the Grand Duchy of Tuscany in 1569. Much of the history of the Florentine Republic is dominated by Catherine's family, the, the Medicis, which, uh, who I'm just remembering now, I read that their surname was actually pronounced Medici. Um, so, oops, I, I was determined not to forget that. And then I just did anyway. Anyway, so the Medicis, uh, you might have heard of them. A uh, very famous political dynasty, uh, probably worth an episode in their own right at some point, although just such a long and very complicated story. Anyway, Catherine, we'll stick with, uh, we'll stick with her. And also we'll stick with the... English rendering of her name rather than Katarina. It's, it's what most people listening will be familiar with, and it will also lessen my chances of continuing to butcher the pronunciation of Italian words. Anyway, so she was born to Lorenzo di Piero di Medici, uh, Florence's ruler, and his wife, Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne. 
Uh, now, these two were married for political reasons to secure an alliance between Florence and France against the Holy Roman Empire. However, this marriage didn't last, and for very tragic reasons, within just a month of Catherine being born, both her parents were dead. Her mum died of a postpartum infection at the age of just 20 or 21, while her dad died after being, quote, worn out by disease and excess. He was only 26, so I really do wonder what he was getting up to. Anyway, the poor orphaned Catherine, she never knew her parents, and she was raised mainly by her aunt, uh, Clarice de' Medici, and was known as the Duchessina, the little duchess. Uh, But then, in 1527, the Medicis were overthrown in Florence by their political rivals. Not good news for young Catherine, you'd think, especially especially as part of this this ousting of the Medicis. She was taken hostage. So, a terrible outcome for her, you would think. But no, 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 not at all. Apparently, little Catherine loved it. She was held in a convent as a hostage. She had a great time there. So, it's a small mercy that, you know, this little kid didn't suffer needlessly. Eventually, in 1530, she was freed when the Medicis returned to power in Florence. And she travelled to Rome, where she was taken into the care of Pope Clement VII, who, you won't be surprised to learn, was also a Medici. Despite her being only 11 years old, Clement's first order of business was to find Catherine a husband, one that would be politically advantageous to him and to the Medicis more broadly. And I'll tell you this, there were no shortage of options. Many, many people were very interested in marrying into this powerful Italian family. King James V of Scotland, for instance, he threw his hat in the ring. He's single and ready to mingle. But Clement, he held out for a better option. And in 1533, one comes along, the second son of the King of France, Henry, the Duke of Orléans. So Henry, right, despite not being heir to the French throne, he is nonetheless from one of the the most powerful royal families in Europe. So this is quite a coup for the Medicis. Even if Henry's not going going to inherit the French throne, still bringing the Medicis closer with the royal house of Valois through this marriage is a brilliant outcome for the Medici family and a huge jump in social standing for young Catherine as well. So the arrangements are made and the wedding between Henry and Catherine is a lavish and grand occasion, let me tell you, although it does get weird because uh, on the wedding night, Henry's dad, uh, King Francis I, he went into the bedroom with the young couple to uh, make sure they, uh, you know, consummated the marriage. And it gets worse because these two were just 14 years old at the time. So yeah, gross, but that's royalty for you. Dad had to come in and make sure everything was done to his exacting standards, apparently. Got to make sure the bloodline continues. After all, can't trust these kids to not have it away. Normally parents are, normally parents are trying to keep teenagers off each other, not the other way around. Anyway, after that first night, It seems that Henry and Catherine didn't really have too much to do with one another. Henry didn't seem to like Catherine very much. Um, And so Catherine was just more or less left to hang out with all the women at the French court, which suited her to begin with. Initially, things went very well. But then Pope Clement died and the next pope was not a Medici. He had no special connection to Catherine and he refused to pay her dowry. So... This greatly damaged Catherine's standing at the French court. Between this and the fact that she just didn't get pregnant with Henry, things really weren't going well for her. King Francis didn't like her. Henry didn't like her. He's off with his mistresses. And it only got worse from there because in 1537, one of Henry's mistresses did get pregnant, which proved that 
he was fertile. And so, of course, Catherine was blamed even more heavily for the lack of children between her and Henry. Never mind that, you know, Henry never went near her. It takes two to tango, don't forget. But, oh, no, poor young Catherine. She's rumoured to be a witch because, as everyone knows, witches can't get pregnant or something. I don't know, man. Anyway, the pressure for Catherine to have a kid and provide an heir for Henry grew immensely in 1536. Remember um, remember how I said Henry as the second son, he's not going to inherit, right? His, his older brother will. Nah, yeah, nah, nah, nah. His older brother, Francis, yep, same as his dad, uh, died at the age of 18, probably from tuberculosis. And so now Henry is the heir apparent. And everyone, mainly Henry and his dad Francis, everyone is all over Catherine like white on rice. Why haven't you gotten pregnant? Come on, back upstairs and give another crack. Let's go. Of course, Catherine bore the blame for all of this. She tried every trick in the book to get pregnant, including apparently seasoning her fanny with ground up stag's antlers. Sure. And also drinking mule's piss, which is, you know, a surefire way to get knocked up. We all know that. Going to make you a real joy to pash after a mouthful of that stuff, isn't it? Anyway, in the fullness of time, however, a, uh, a different reason emerged as to why Henry and Catherine uh, didn't have kids for so long. And it tends to be the reason that is cited today when explaining the, the problems they had with conception. Um, uh, and the reason is this. This is, this is not a joke. <clears throat> the reason is this. The reason is that Henry had a weird dick. Apparently, his rocket dog was just all deformed and fully messed up, and uh, that, just the physiology of that apparently, was uh, was getting in the way of, uh, of Catherine getting pregnant. So, no idea what was going on there, but that seems to be the consensus these days, which is very amusing. Anyway... Henry, he's considering divorcing Catherine uh, because he's so determined to have an heir and it's not happening with her. But then, luckily for Catherine, at long last, in 1543, she finally became pregnant. All the stag antlers and mule piss finally paying off. Or, I don't know, maybe she just got the hang of Henry's weird dick. But whatever the reason, uh, she gave birth to a son, uh, also named Francis, of course, so... By now, just for those playing along at home, Henry's got a dad, a dead brother, and a son, all named Francis. And uh, with the birth of the uh, the royal heir, there was much rejoicing. Great job, Catherine. You got there. Not that it really improved things between Henry and her at all. Since 1538, he'd been shagging a woman named Diane de Poitiers, his favourite mistress, to the exclusion of essentially every other woman in his life. Um, and old Diane really was old. She was a bit of a cougar. She was 38 when she started shagging Henry, and he was just 19. And while Henry's busy off getting it with uh, with Diane, uh, Catherine has just kind of left her own devices. Um, occasionally, Henry would come and visit her and they'd have another kid. Uh, it looks like Catherine did really, really did get the hang of his deformed rocket dog at the, at the very least because she gave birth 10 times in total between 1544 and 1556, although sadly only seven of the kids survived infancy. But uh, Henry still never really liked Catherine all that much at all, and this didn't change when he inherited the throne. Uh, in 1547, Francis I died, Henry became King of France, and with this, Catherine became Queen Consort, and in a move that 
Won't surprise you at all, Henry just sidelined her completely, not allowing her even a lick of royal influence or power, or even more generally, any of his time or attention. Instead, he uh, he heaped his attention, he heaped his favours on Diane de Poitiers, who was a real piece of work, completely discrediting and undermining Catherine's authority, talking smack about her in front of the whole court while Henry sat on her lap. This is actually something that happened. Henry really was just completely eating out of her palm, probably probably literally in, uh, in some situations, I would imagine, based on what I read about their relationship. And this continued into the 1550s. Catherine, Catherine remained on the sidelines, although she did keep having kids with Henry, as I said. That is until until 1556, when Catherine uh, gave birth to twins. Sadly, neither survived, and she was terribly injured by the birth, almost almost losing her life. And after this, the royal physician suggested that the couple stop having more children. Seven is quite enough at this stage. Um, and Henry did not mind this at all. From that point on, it was like Catherine just didn't exist to him. He's off with Diane instead, of course. So... Catherine, she focuses on raising her children and, in one case, her future daughter-in-law, who we've actually talked about on the podcast before because it had been arranged that the daughter of James V of Scotland, the bloke I mentioned before, would marry Francis, Catherine's eldest son. And that daughter grew up to become Mary, Queen of Scots, episode 19, Get Across It. And this wasn't the only politically advantageous marriage that was organised for, for Catherine's children. Uh, her daughter Elizabeth was betrothed to Philip II of Spain, for instance, strengthening the ties between these two proudly Catholic nations. But I want to tell you about their wedding, a, a proxy wedding. Philip wasn't actually there because this wedding ended up being a decisive event that completely disrupted the course of French history and... Not because a French woman was going off to become the Queen of Spain. Nothing to do with that. As part of the wedding celebrations, there were all sorts of different events and festivities, as you might expect, including, of course, a series of ever-popular jousts. And old mate King Henry II, he decides that he's going to take part in these jousts. He rides out proudly, sporting the colours that Diane always wore, black and white. Another snub for Catherine, but hey... That's been her entire marriage, right? She's used to it by now, so whatever. But something that she certainly was not used to was seeing her husband's face smashed in with a lance, which is exactly what happened during the jousting. A young French count almost knocked Henry off his horse in one tilt, which the king didn't like, and so he demanded a rematch. He demanded to go again with this count. And this time the count did one better, when he caved Henry's face in with his lance, wounding the king horrifically. Henry had five huge splinters of wood carefully removed from his shattered face, but one of them had been driven all the way through one of his eyes and into his brain, and so he never recovered. After 10 days, he died of this terrible wound, which resulted in a few different things. Firstly, Jousting was banned in France, the beginning of the end of the sport more broadly. It didn't even really make it another hundred years after this. But secondly, Catherine took for her personal emblem a broken lance and started wearing black in mourning for her dead husband. But thirdly, and much more importantly, her son Francis became king, which began her time as queen regent. And much more broadly, 
as one of the most powerful figures in France at the time. Catherine wasn't immediately able to seize power and rule through her young son. However, she was actually beaten to the punch by two senior French statesmen that had risen to prominence under Henry, the Cardinal of Lorraine and the Duke of Guise, who happened to be brothers. The Guise brothers were the uncles of young Scottish Mary, Francis's wife, the future Mary Queen of Scots, and they moved extremely quickly to seize power once Henry died. The brothers moved into the royal palace, the Louvre, and essentially took physical control of the young king, who's just 15, and he is a weak, timid, and sickly little kid. So Catherine, to begin with, recognised that it would be politically expedient to work with the Guise brothers rather than against them, and so accepted a role that uh, began lacking in real power, but slowly and steadily grew and grew. And I'll tell you what, in any case, she was a lot freer to exercise her will now that Henry was dead. One of the first things she did was turf Diana Poitier out, out on her ass. She confiscated her riches and the opulent chateau that Henry had given her. On your bike, Diane, mate, you're out of here. But as I say, slowly but steadily, Catherine increased her power and influence at her young son's royal court, often in opposition to the Guise brothers. And nowhere was this more obvious than when it came to the biggest political issue of the day, religious conflict. The Protestant Reformation is in full swing. France is a Catholic nation and the Guises are thirsty for the blood of French Reformed Protestants, or Huguenots, as they're often called. Catherine, however, despite being uh, a Catholic, she was, uh, she was a little more moderate. She advocated tolerance. She opposed the persecution that the Guise brothers were so horny to meet out on the Huguenots. Um, and the king himself, young Francis, largely an afterthought as Catherine and the Guise brothers grappled for control of France's religious policies. As I said, Francis, he's frail, he's weak, he's always sick with something, and uh, was often readily influenced by his mum or his, I guess, what are they, his, his uncles-in-law, I suppose. Anyway, as we move into 1560 now, the Guises, they're going about killing Huguenots in inventively nasty ways, showing off all their wonderfully Catholic grace and charity. Uh, Catherine, on the other hand, she's, try she's trying to prevent an all-out civil war. She's trying to prevent other Huguenots from rising up in rebellion against the persecution that they're facing. Uh, she's attempting to enforce the, the rule of law, secure peace. Catherine didn't like the Huguenots. She was a Catholic through and through, but she did at least make some very serious efforts to calm down the murderous persecution that, the, that they were suffering. But then... The political landscape shifted once again when poor young Francis II died at the age of just 16 of an ear infection, of all things. And this shifted the balance of power well and truly in Catherine's favour. Because with Mary, the young Scottish Mary, no longer a queen consort, the power and influence that the Guises had as Mary's uncles, it was greatly diminished, although not completely. They still very happily went about murdering Huguenots like nothing had happened. But as tragic as the death of Francis was, the succession of Catherine's second son, Charles, to the throne gave her a brand new opportunity to greatly increase her power as Queen Regent. King Charles IX was just 10 years old when he was crowned. Apparently he cried during the coronation, the poor kid. And Catherine, through clever pol political manoeuvring, was confirmed as his regent and as the governor of France. 
There was no denying her power now. She was in charge of the French government, theoretically answerable to no one, able to run the realm as she saw fit, in theory. In reality, she faced endless challenges, but it's still safe to say that the ascension of Charles to the throne left her right at the top of the pile. She was large and in charge, mate. But challenge number one was, of course, having the kingdom on the brink of civil war. Protestants everywhere were being strung up and murdered, which was, you know, not exactly conducive to the running of a peaceful and prosperous realm. And on top of that, you've got rogue barons who are rejecting the weakened power of the French royal court, a child on the throne, a woman in charge, and not even a French woman for that matter. She's bloody Italian. So Catherine had a tricky old hand in front of her here and she had to be very careful how she decided to play it. In order to try to heal some of the division between the feuding Protestants and Catholics, she summoned religious leaders of both flavours to Paris to talk over the issue in 1561. And this did not work at all. I challenge you to find many successfully negotiated agreements between Protestants and Catholics uh, from throughout history there. There are not a lot of them. I think Catherine underestimated just how much Protestants and Catholics hate each other, to, to be honest, because her peace summit was an absolute failure. And then in 1562, after Catherine had issued the Edict of Saint-Germain to try to encourage tolerance between the two factions, the Guises got up to their old tricks again and murdered a bunch of Huguenots during a Protestant church service. So classy move there. Well done, you blokes. The massacre of Vassy actually kicked off what have become known as the French Wars of Religion. And for the next three and a half decades, France was embroiled for much of the time in civil war. A civil war that Catherine now had to deal with as regent because the king is, you know, 12. He's not about to take care of it himself. Many Huguenots raised their banners in rebellion with assistance from the English, as if the English were going to pass up, pass up an opportunity to scrap with the French. Mate, come on, of course, they're going in all guns blazing. And uh, the war began in earnest, as I mentioned, and wasn't quickly decided, both sides winning and losing all over the place. Although there was a bit of good news for Catherine. In 1563, a Huguenot spy conned his way into the camp outside Orléans, where where the Duke of Guise was leading the siege of the city. And this spy shot and killed the Duke. He was tortured and then drawn and quartered for this little effort. But Catherine was very pleased, despite the fact that she and the Duke were nominally on the same side, Catherine was very glad that her bloodthirsty ally had been assassinated because it did result in a reduction of tensions between Protestants and Catholics. And after a year or so of fighting with the death of this belligerent duke, Catherine issued the Edict of Amboise, which uh, guaranteed some religious freedoms to Huguenots in exchange for their loyalty to the crown and a cessation of hostilities. So this paused the war for a little while. And in the meantime, Charles came of age. He was able to rule in his own right, although he just didn't. He didn't seem very interested in in leadership or governance, to be honest. He was happy enough for his mum to just take care of business. Uh, Nonetheless, in 1564 and 1565, she organised a great big trip all around France, all around the realm, uh, with the king to try to encourage increased loyalty to the French crown, the French royal court, to try to increase the, uh, the, the general opinion that people had of their young king. And uh, this didn't really work, to put it mildly, because in 1567, the Huguenots staged an attempted coup. Uh, the uh, the so-called Surprise of Moor, which is spelt M-E-A-U-X, so 
I just I just don't know what's going on with French there. Anyway, um, the surprise of Moore saw the Huguenots try and fail to kidnap young King Charles, but they certainly succeeded in restarting the Civil War, and they also succeeded in really pissing Catherine off, which proved to be a bad move. Catherine, as I've mentioned, was a rusted-on Catholic. She bloody loved the Pope, bloody loved a bit of a munch on the old communion wafer. But up until this point, she had been, for a Catholic, unusually tolerant towards Protestants. But when they tried to kidnap her son, she had a bit of a change of heart and started going after them like she was the bloody Duke of Guise. Well, no, not not that bad. She wasn't that thirsty for Protestant blood, but... You see where I'm coming from here, because the war kicked off once again and it raged on until 1570 when, long story short, the Catholics lost. They ran out of money. They were forced to offer even more concessions and tolerance to the Huguenots. A lot of Catholics weren't pleased about this, but it did bring about, for a time, an unsteady and rather shaky peace, which wouldn't last. But we'll get to that. It was during this period of peace that Catherine turned her attention to marrying off her kids for political gain. She tried and failed to marry one of her younger sons to Elizabeth I of England. That would have been interesting. Uh, But she did secure some other important unions. She married King Charles to Elizabeth of Austria, the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor. Not bad. And she also sought a marriage between her daughter Margaret and the King of Navarre, Henry III, in 1572. Before this, Margaret had actually been sleeping with, of all people, the son of the Duke of Guise, whose name, confusingly, was also Henry. Uh, and when Catherine found out about this little affair, she apparently dragged her daughter out of bed and gave her an absolute hiding, even pulled out some of her hair. She must have really hated the Guises. Anyway, 1572 uh, saw something else happen, which was much more important, an event that would ultimately rekindle the French wars of religion in a huge way. One day, a prominent Huguenot, uh, Admiral Coligny, he was walking through Paris when he was shot. Not fatally, but his hand and his arm were badly wounded. Now, even though he didn't die, Catherine made a great big show of coming to his bedside, visiting him. Oh, on come the waterworks, she's saying how she'll get to the bottom of it. She'll find and punish his attacker. This is terrible. Now, Many have actually theorised that it might have been her that ordered the assassination attempt to get a high-profile Huguenot out of the way. By all accounts, King Charles seemed to quite like Coligny. Uh, and so Catherine and, and others were, were quite concerned about Coligny's influence on the young monarch. They didn't, want him, uh, they didn't want him exposed to the dangerous heresies of the Huguenots. So really, it could have been any number of Catholics. It could have been Catherine. It could have been the new Duke of Guise, that guy Margaret had been shagging. Uh, but whoever was responsible, Huguenots in Paris were outraged at the, at the assassination attempt on one of their highest ranking and most well-respected members. So tension was brewing once again. And with rumblings of Huguenot reprisals for the attack on Colony, the Catholics decided to get out ahead of it. After much debate, on the evening of the 23rd of August, Catherine had a closed-door meeting with Charles, and no one knows what happened during this conversation, but we certainly do know the result of it. Charles IX came out and ordered all the Protestant leaders in the city to be killed, just like that, so as to, so as to suppress any potential Huguenot uprising that they may help to organise. 
He ordered the city gates be closed to prevent the Huguenots from escaping the oncoming bloodbath. And he ordered loyal Catholics throughout Paris to arm themselves in readiness for what was coming. And then that night, a group of Catholic leaders sent off by the king went out into the city and murdered every single high-profile Huguenot they could find. And then a few thousand more regular Huguenots as well, just for good measure. For instance, the Duke of Guise was the one to finish off Coligny, dragged him out of bed, killed him and threw his body out a window. And then he and his men just went down the city streets in Paris, dragging known or even just suspected Huguenots out of their beds and murdering them as well. As the night continued, more and more Catholics joined in on the killings, roving the streets in mobs and murdering any and all Huguenots they came across. Historians, even today, still argue about the total death toll, especially as in the coming days, the killings continued, spreading out from Paris into the surrounding areas and across France. Lower estimates, lower estimates, put the number at 5,000. And higher estimates claim it was as many as 30,000. A senseless waste of human life, whatever the final figure, a needless, murderous rampage through the French Protestant community. And even today, there is still a lot of debate about who bears what responsibility for this massacre, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, as it became known. It was Charles who ordered the killing of high-profile Huguenots to prevent a supposed Protestant uprising. But who was it that influenced him to do this? Was it his mother Catherine, who was now past her time of religious tolerance and wanted to get out ahead of the Protestants before they could respond to the assassination attempt on Colony, an assassination attempt that she may have ordered in the first place? Or was it the Guises, yet again, young Henry of Guise, inheriting his father's taste for Huguenot blood? Certainly, the massacre spiralled out of control as thousands of Huguenots were murdered in the streets, which wasn't what Charles had ordered, but does he still carry the blame for those deaths, for instigating the the killings in the first place. Some have painted Catherine as being very close to innocent in all of this. But on the other hand, some paint her as being the driving force behind the massacre taking place. The short and highly unsatisfactory, I know, answer is this. We just don't know. The truth is perhaps somewhere in the middle. Maybe Catherine did consider a Huguenot uprising to be a very real threat and so advised her son to seize the initiative and kill the Huguenot leaders before they could organise a response. But did she want rivers of Protestant blood flowing through the streets of Paris and beyond? Was she in favour of the wide-scale massacre that took place? I don't know. But certainly, there were those back then that thought so. Catherine's opponents accused her of being an evil, scheming queen. They said she was just like her countryman Machiavelli, using the ruthless, cutthroat politics of the Italians to rid herself of all her enemies in one go. But more broadly, the massacre reflected horribly on Catholics in general. And Protestants everywhere, both in and outside of France, were even more firmly convinced that Catholics were treacherous, bloodthirsty, and inhumane, which is not a difficult conclusion to come to after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. But it worked. I will say the Huguenots, they lacked all their leaders after this spate of murders. They were scattered. They were greatly disempowered. And so the massacre at least met the goal of preventing Protestant reprisals. 
The massacre and Catherine's probable approval of at least the initial wave of killings is certainly the biggest stain on her reputation and legacy as a monarch and as a power broker. And I'll tell you this, she paid a very steep and very personal price for it. Because the massacre ended up having an irreversible effect on one person in particular, King Charles. He had been the one to order it after all, regardless of who suggested he should. And in the two years after the massacre, Charles slowly but surely lost his grip on sanity. Both his mental and then physical health went into sharp decline as he was very obviously plagued with horrific guilt at what he'd done. Guilt so overpowering that it cost him his very life. Towards the end, he would tell people that he could still hear the screaming of the massacred Protestants. And then in mid-1574, he died at just 23 years of age, driven to death by the crippling weight of guilt that he felt. And also tuberculosis. That probably didn't help and was almost certainly worsened by his uh, mental and physical state. And the death of Charles, who died without an heir, meant that Catherine's fourth son, one of her sons died in infancy, took the French throne. And his name was, I'm, I'm so sorry about this, his name was also Henry, King Henry III of France. But he wasn't around. Henry had been elected as the king of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth of all places when King Sigismund II Augustus had died without an heir. The Poles and the Lithuanians had agreed to have Henry as their new king in exchange for French military support against Russia. And as Henry was a fourth son, unexpected to inherit the French throne, he was plonked on the Polish-Lithuanian throne instead as a consolation prize. Brilliant! But then his older brother Charles died, and so he turned right back around and headed to France again. Bugger the bloody Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and also the political crisis that he caused by leaving. That sounds like a them problem, not a Henry problem. Henry III came home and took his throne as King of France. And as sad as Catherine must have been to be, you know, three sons down, she would have been very pleased to have Henry back in Paris with her because Henry was undoubtedly her favourite son and also the first of her kids to ascend to the French throne as a fully grown man, although, like his brothers, he wasn't in great nick physically. And uh, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for Catherine, Henry wasn't all that interested in governance. He let his mum get on with the business of running the kingdom while he, uh, well, he... um. He went pretty deep on some really Catholic stuff. Anyone listening to uh, to this who was raised Catholic, like me, will know that the guilt. Oh boy, the guilt. Oh my goodness, the guilt. They really make sure it gets in there nice and deep, don't they? Henry was into stuff like self-flagellation. The poor bastard is Catholic guilt potentially compounded by the fact that he may have been homosexual. Uh, He struggled to produce an heir with his wife, Louise of Lorraine, which was a constant issue for not just him, but also Catherine, who was trying to keep the French royal court together in the face of continued strife with the Huguenots. Something that wasn't made any easier by her fifth and youngest son, who... All right, listen to this. Who was named... Hercule, right, when he was born, but then changed his name to Francis. So this is Catherine's second son who went by by Francis. She also had 
a brother-in-law and a father-in-law named Francis. It's all just bloody Francis's and Henry's all the way down here. Anyway, this Francis, he started to flirt with the idea of becoming a Huguenot himself. And so in order to forestall a member of the French royal family converting to Protestantism, Catherine appointed at his behest the Edict of Beaulieu, the most tolerant edict yet to try to calm things down. In the back half of the 1570s, Catherine travelled around France, returning, it seems, to her initial policies of compromise, tolerance and appeasement of the Huguenots. And this earned earned her a decent amount of goodwill from the Protestants, but enraged Catholics like Henry of Guise, who still wanted to bloody slaughter the lot of them. But all the same, Catherine did an excellent job as a diplomat. She travelled around her son's realm and made sure a tenuous peace was held between Protestants and Catholics, which, as you can imagine, was not an easy thing to do. But her problems were far from over, because now it's not her son, but her daughter who's causing problems for her. Remember Margaret, the uh, the daughter that she had married off to the King of Navarre, one of the many, many Henrys we've met today? Well, she was sent back to Paris by her husband, because apparently Margaret wasn't a particularly faithful wife, which uh, further damaged the prestige of the French royal court. And uh, estranging France from Navarre was a very big problem for Catherine. uh, And it was a problem that was made worse in 1584. Why, you may wonder, why was it a big problem and, and how was it made worse? Well, I'll tell you. The line of succession when Henry III of France became king, it went him and then his younger brother Francis, and then it went to the King of Navarre, who was a Huguenot. Henry's lack of heirs meant that if he died, and then if Francis died, the French throne would go to a Protestant. And that is why Catherine had married her daughter to the King of Navarre. Even though he was a Huguenot, she did it to make sure there would be at least one Catholic about the place, maybe raise her grandchildren in the Catholic faith. But Margaret's inability to stay faithful was endangering the carefully laid plans that Catherine had made. And then in 1584, this is when I said things really got out of control, Francis, her fifth and final son, who was next in line to the throne, he died, meaning that Henry III's heir is the King of Navarre. Again, another Henry, and infuriatingly, it gets worse because King Henry of Navarre is King Henry III of Navarre. So you've got King Henry III of France, who is going to be succeeded by King Henry III of Navarre. Why didn't they just make my job easier by using different names? I don't know. Anyway, Catherine is spitting chips at Margaret. She is so angry with her daughter. Get back over to Navarre. And if you're going to jump into bed with someone, bloody make well sure it's your husband, she says. But nope. After getting back to Navarre, Margaret fled with a new lover and Catherine tracked him down, locked up her daughter and executed the bloke that she had absconded with. She actually wanted to uh, stage the execution in front of Margaret. This didn't end up happening. Thankfully for Margaret, she wasn't traumatised by watching her, her lover die in front of her. But Catherine never spoke to her daughter again. She was that pissed off with Margaret for having messed up all of these careful dynastic plans that she'd been making for so many years. 
But while all this is going on, things are only getting worse on the wars of religion front. Henry of Guise is up to his old tricks. He had established the Catholic League, a group of French Catholic leaders who were determined to prevent the Huguenot Henry of Navarre from inheriting the throne at all costs. Remember, Henry III of France doesn't have an heir. If he dies, that's it. The French throne becomes Protestant. And so now, somehow, Catherine is in the middle of the Huguenots and the Catholics, trying to maintain an unsteady peace as tension ratcheted up once again. Henry, throughout this time, absolutely useless. He just went into hiding and left Catherine to sort it all out. A nigh impossible task, mind you. Royal authority had been completely undermined by the militant divisions between Protestants and Catholics who were all rallying around their respective leaders like Henry of Guise rather than the crown. Eventually, even the people of Paris itself rejected the authority of their king, instead pledging loyalty to Henry of Guise and his Catholic League. And this, unfortunately for Catherine, was the end of her time in charge of France. King Henry came out of hiding and capitulated to Guise and the Catholic League, effectively handing power over to Henry of Guise. And he did this while Catherine was bedridden with illness. So she wasn't even able to respond to what her son was doing. And then, of course, once Guise came to power, he completely sidelined Catherine. And that, as I say, was that for her when it came to effectively ruling France. Catherine had been the de facto overlord of the realm from the time that her husband, Henry, died in 1559, all the way through to when her son, Henry, gave in to the Catholic League in 1588. And sadly, she died not long after this, on the 5th of January, 1589, but not before Henry seemed to have completely changed his mind about the Catholic League and Guise, because he had Henry of Guise murdered by his bodyguards and then joined forces with the Huguenot Henry III of Navarre? This plunged France into further chaos. But as I say, Catherine, she didn't have to deal with it. She wasn't around to deal with it. This time, she died just a few weeks after the assassination of Henry of Guise. And then, later that year, her son Henry III was also assassinated, meaning... That, despite Catherine's best efforts, despite the best efforts of the Catholic League, a Huguenot took the throne. Henry III of Navarre became Henry IV of France. And so the French wars of religion continued as the country tore itself apart with Catholics refusing to accept Henry of Navarre as king. Protestants and Catholics kept killing each other with reckless abandon, leaving between two and four million people dead before the wars finally ended in 1598. But Catherine wasn't around to see it, despite the huge part she played in the ongoing conflict between these two sides, she never saw it come to an end. Catherine de Medici was a truly defining figure in French politics for the entire second half of the 16th century, but even all of her clever planning and plotting and manoeuvring couldn't secure the French crown for her children. The House of Valois lost the throne to the House of Bourbon, the house that would go on to rule France until the monarchy was abolished centuries down the line. 
Catherine ruled France during one of the most turbulent periods in its history. Not the most turbulent, as we said. Rather, obviously, she wasn't around for the French Revolution. But nonetheless, for the time she was in charge, she had an extremely difficult task in front of her. From go to woe, ruling a realm in constant turmoil and conflict, in widespread civil war, in a time when French people and the French kingdom were tearing themselves to pieces. She was, for the most part, a skillful diplomat who contributed more to the sake of peace than she did ignite the flames of war. But her record was far from perfect, as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre indicates. Even today, historians love to argue over her actual legacy as the de facto ruler of France for 30 years. But whatever you make of her legacy, you cannot deny that Catherine de' Medici was, beyond a shadow of a doubt, an incredibly important figure in French history, one who shaped the course that France would take in the coming years, decades, and even centuries. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Catherine de' Medici, a very powerful and very important figure in French history. So I do hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about her and her story. Wrapping up the episode, of course, with all the boring housekeeping stuff, I want to thank all the people getting in touch via the contact form at halfasshistory.net. It is the best way to get in touch with the show, and I read every single email that comes across my desk. So thank you so much to all the people writing in. Old listeners, new listeners, it's great to hear from all of you. Uh, Do keep sending in your topic suggestions, any feedback you may have or anything like that. I I love reading through these emails. I apologize I can't reply to all of them. It's just just because I get so many. Um, And of course, when it comes to supporting the show, there are a range of ways to do this via Patreon, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory, where you'll gain access to all sorts of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, exclusive merch in addition to show notes, uncut episodes, early access to episodes as well if you can't wait for your fix of Half House History. Uh, and there's also merch available in the merch shop uh, via T Public. Just head to halfhousehistory.net and uh, and follow the link there. You'll find it. Thank you to all the people who are giving Quarter House History a, a go. I want to give another plug. Uh, I, I've seen that not everyone has uh, has tried out the uh, the short form version of the show. You really should. It's it's good, man. It's real. It's it's probably better than the longer ones, to be honest. They're funnier anyway. So if you enjoy a bit of nonsense, a bit of silly history, please do have a listen to them because, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I reckon they're actually pretty good. They're much closer in spirit to, to where the podcast began as a, as a sort of a collection of all the, all the sillier stories from history. So, so um, give it a crack. Have, have a go at it and, and, and see what you reckon. Anyway, um, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Uh, if, there are, if there's a person in your life who's a big fan of French history, let them know. Uh, if there's somebody who wants, wants to learn more about a, a powerful woman from the early modern period, well, Catherine de Medici, a great story for them to listen to. So uh, thanks so much to the people spreading the good word of half House history. Got to get those numbers up. Anyway, going to close out the show, of course, this week, as we do every week, with a question posed on Reddit. Um, I tripped up a couple of times with some of the, Fre- the, the French pronunciation. Won't surprise many of you who have listened to this show for a long time. It's not, uh, not my strongest suit, foreign names. But uh, look, French is, a, French is a pretty ridiculous language when it comes. I mean, I know English can't talk, but I don't know why there are so many bloody silent letters in, uh, in French. And, and Redditor Abu Ben Adam has a good question about French uh, as a result of this, uh, this, this concerning trend we're seeing with the French language. <clears throat> At what point in time is French projected to become a completely silent language altogether? <laughs> <laughs>